Welcome to the Third Growth Option Podcast, where we talk with business leaders and innovators hungry to drive growth that can be faster than internal organic growth and less risky than acquisition. Your moderator is Bernal Dunkerspuller, Chief Sherpa and CEO at Realign, who has led private equity-owned distributors through turnarounds and growth. With battle-proven leaders from all frontiers, we want to provoke thinking about business growth beyond conventional wisdom and binary choices. Hey, I'm Benno with George Minikakis, a former ice cream shopkeeper who grew up to be a CEO, an author. You're also a second generation immigrant, a proud Canadian, former expat in Hong Kong and Shanghai. Was that a pretty good introduction, George? Yeah, it is. Yeah, I mean, the ice cream shop brings back memories, yes. <laughs> hey, w- welcome to Third Growth Option Podcast. You and I both grew up in consumer-facing businesses, which which I think is just such great schooling. If you can do business with thousands or, or millions of consumers, it's a tough business, and there's a lot to be learned. We both worked our way into leadership roles and adjusted to different cultures and, and countries, so really great to spend some time together on, on this growth podcast. You know, I learn a lot from my guests, and I'm looking forward to Learn about your perspective on growth. Great. I hope I can fulfill that. So, George, you have a obviously very impressive career track, like I said, from ice cream shop into the C-suite and internationally, and we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. But I kind of want to first talk about what seem to be sort of four personal mantras of yours. One, stay relevant. Two, dismiss nothing. Three, expect the unexpected. Finally, plan for the impossible. How did you come to focus and, and sort of embrace these four? Okay, that's a great question. Thanks. <laughs> All right, so staying relevant uh, has always been something that's been with me uh, on a personal level that, you know, you have to continuously work at developing yourself as an individual, not just for work, but, you know, for your physical and mental well-being. Mm-hmm. And uh, I put, you know, a great deal of effort to do that, I continuously educate myself. I've taken a lot of programs from MIT to Lund um, just to continuously stay at pace with where the world is moving, not just you know listening to webinars, but just to validate those webinars with formal education as well. So it, it helps. But you know, you the other thing you end up doing is when you walk up the ladder, and believe me, <laughs> you walk up it slowly sometimes, and other times too fast, but you get to mentor others and you know you realize you see the people that you're mentoring and they're growing you recognize that you need to continue to grow too because once you've stalled it creates a bit of a problem for a career so i've stuck with that path and i've shared it with anyone that's ever worked with me because i believe that that's probably the only way to continuously stay employed build your own business you know or any other career path that you want to take uh, or rewrite your own story it's the only way to really to do it successfully There's another saying that I'd love, you cannot lead others unless you can lead yourself, right? And that's, you know, when you talk about staying relevant, you're talking about teaching yourself in order to teach others, right? Exactly. And an organization doesn't move forward without that type of leadership. It doesn't happen. You know, when you see organizations a lot, we've both seen organizations in the consumer sector in the last 10, 15 years that have failed. You know, they're close-minded in terms of change because they didn't, and I think most of the time it happens because they didn't understand change. 
had they been more connected to the way the world was evolving, understood the principles and technology and everything else that went with it, probably less companies would have failed. Right. So your point about dismiss nothing and expect the unexpected, it's, it's really about keep your ear to the ground. You know, and change and growth are in many ways synonymous and you can't grow without changing and you cannot change others without changing yourself. With dismissing nothing, right, it's all dismissing nothing and, and expecting the unexpected and you know, planning for the improbable. It's a push of the mind. You continuously ask all the questions. That came from a lot of my board director training. That level of experience gives you a different perspective completely because you're not the operator of a business. You're a mentor and a guide and a sounding board for management. And you learn that, you know, this is businesses are all about developing strategies, mitigating risks, and the continuous growth of a business. So those three principles, I've applied them to business and to myself. I take nothing for granted. I'll, I'll take personal credit for on my own for recognizing that the pandemic was heading our way because mm-hmm. I dismissed nothing at that mm-hmm. point. You know, I saw what was, I was on a project, I saw what was happening in Asia and said, boy, this better not come this way. And if it does, here's what could go wrong. Unfortunately, I was right. Let's jump a little bit into your career track into the C-suite in, in different countries. What's been your sort of absolute most favorite, I, I don't know, single milestone or maybe two or three milestones. Hopefully one of them is the ice cream shop because I love that story. (laughs) Okay, so we'll start with that because I mean, so everybody understands what what this is about. So my dad dad owned a business and had some real estate ties. They were relocating a restaurant and he had some time left on this location. And he said, you know, I'm going to turn this into an ice cream, coffee and ice cream shop. I said, oh, yeah, well, what are we, who's going to run it? He goes, you are. <laughs> I thought, okay. Well, I'm 15 years old, 16 maybe. Uh, my plans for the summer were very different than the ones in the plans he had for me. <laughs> so, but I learned, I mean, trial by fire. And um, I have to admit that it was, I did an okay job. I probably consumed a lot of profits the first week or two. Well, you got, you got to love the product you're selling, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I trialed everything. <laughs> Friends dropped by to see me, served, you know, gave them some. You know, so, uh, you know, my, the old man will always ask me, how'd you do today? Not good. <laughs> so when are we going to do better? So that was always the question. Uh, and he could always say, say to me, you know, you know, keep going, don't stop. He said that to me right to the last days. You know, keep going, don't stop. So I've never, I've never forgotten that. And that's, uh, that's stuck with me. So that was kind of the lesson there. And from a career point of view, I went off to PepsiCo, started working there as a field manager, and then uh, got into franchise development. Uh, I ended up in Hawaii and Guam, and then I joined Luxottica, great business, you know, in terms of uh, the brands that they own, both in eyewear and in eye care, great company. And for listeners that are not maybe familiar with the Luxottica name, would be names like Lens Crafter and um, others. Sunglass Hut, Pearl Vision. And they owned Oakley and Ray-Ban, some of the brands that they manufacture as well. So it's a very iconic business and um, great success story. So it was a great learning experience because you really got to reach for the brass ring and uh, kept climbing and you're only as good as your last week in a lot of these environments. So you no kidding. You got to continuously push yourself and ask how much more I can take in terms of responsibility. So I recognize that continuously 
growing my career was about assuming more responsibility. At one point, I was running four retail chains at mm-hmm. one time. Then they tapped me on the shoulder and asked me to go to Australia. I couldn't because my daughter just started college and my wife was not about ready to go there and to move out. And then they, you know, they call, asked me to come to the U.S. Timing not good there either. The, young, the oldest guy was going to go to school. Then they said, China. And my wife comes out and says to me, somebody on a phone from Italy wants to talk to you. And I was planting a tree. I went inside and we, you know, the, the voice on the other side said, you know, we're, we want to expand in China. We'd like you to, uh, to lead this. And um, I told my wife, she goes, you got to take this one. I thought, I'm going to go to a country I don't understand the language. <laughs> right. You know, all the other two were pretty easy. And we did that. And it was a great experience. From Toronto to, to Shanghai, or where did you guys move? First move was to Beijing. And we stayed there for about six to eight months. Then we were restructuring because we, we bought a number of businesses. So we were consolidating and restructuring things. Home base became Shanghai. I think I've learned a total of 85 words. But to be quite honest, I can order a hamburger and a beer fairly well. Yeah. That's 81 words more than I speak Chinese. So Yeah, well, and then uh, I, I would do speeches in Pinyin, which is a... Chinese English phonics, if you will, and uh, my assistant who spoke English impeccably, but with a British accent, and I would say to her, "Where did you, did you live in the UK?" And she goes, "No, no, but my professor had a, an English accent, so she picked up his accent as well." It's quite interesting, and China is such a unique country, and uh, great people, lots of opportunities, and but you got to know what you're doing, and you got to have great teams around you to get there. But look, I did all of that and um, came back home. I ended up back in the role that I had before I left for China. The company was great with me. And then at that point, uh, reached a point where I said, okay, enough. So in 2013, we parted company. And at that point, I decided that um, I'm going I'm to plant trees in the back. And my wife gave me about six months uh, to do that. <laughs> and she was right. Probably four and a half months at the most, right? <laughs> yeah, really. You know, I think I probably realized it within three months. But. And then uh, I, was, uh, I was on my car driving back home and somebody called me up. Did you ever think of owning this company? I said, yeah, I would. If you got $150 million to lend me. And they said, money's not a problem. Let's talk. So that was the beginning of my uh, introduction to private equity, pursuing deals and uh, working with private equity as an advisor and a CEO partner. So I really enjoy that. That stuck with me and that more or less has become my uh, career path in, in the current time frame. And um, when, when you're not writing books? When I'm not writing books, I've written, uh, well, there's a third one coming. So, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, a great, it's a great way to communicate what you've learned with others. I would say each book got better <laughs> than the last. Yeah, and you become a better writer, although I hire, hire editors to make sure that uh, um, it's not, you're not just reading my slang, that you're reading a, a well-published book. So, I do want to ask you about the books, but before I do that, just uh, you know, the, the the companies you've worked with have all been all been consumer facing, right? Whether it's the ice cream shop or Pepsi or retailers like LensCrafter and, and Pearl Vision, etc. What is it you love about retail, or maybe hate about retail? I don't know. <laughs> well, you know what? I, I say I, it's a great question. It really, considering where how retailing is today, it's a great question. I love the ambiguity of it. And that would drive a lot of people crazy. You know, you're constantly have to renew and reflect on your strategies all the time. You know, your positioning in the marketplace and how you're going to reach consumers. And it's complex, more complex than ever it has been. 
but it's so much fun. You know, I, I thrive on the stress. I know I, I really do. I enjoy that. So you're a glutton for punishment. <laughs> yeah, I, I am, I guess. You know, I, I need it. I, I really need that fix. And, uh, but I, I, it's the other part of it was the people, the people that you worked with. Uh, I enjoyed visiting stores. They, uh, when I was working, uh, they were alerts uh, in Canada if I, was visit, if I was out with my kids on a Saturday. A George alert. <laughs> it was. Seriously, it was a George alert. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I visit stores. And look, and I figured, you know, you got people working on a Saturday and Sunday. Uh, why not drop by and say hello? That puts a little more respect to things. So I, I, I enjoy that. And you talk to the frontline folks. You ended up talking to, to a lot of customers. Um, and you learn a lot more. You know, you, you don't, um, you know, you can do a lot of market research, but when, if you're out in locations talking to your staff and to the customers, you can question, agree with, or challenge a lot of the research that comes your way. It's the moment of truth, right? That being in the store. And, you know, I, I spent the first 10 years of my career in retail, you know, a couple of years right out of college, working in stores, sort of working my way up from department to store manager. And then, you know, as a, as a buyer, as a marketing manager, and, you know, the, the leaders that I remember, you know, like the CEO of Ikea North America, Steen Cantor was in the stores all the time. Gary Friedman, the, who is now chairman CEO of RH, Restoration Hardware, out in the stores all the time. You can write PowerPoints, strategies, pie charts, <laughs> time and action calendars. All of that is important. But it's like, you know, Mike Tyson says, you know, everybody has a strategy until they get punched in the nose. And in the store, you get punched in the nose all the time, right? <laughs> or there are many aha moments, many eye-opening moments, but... Look, I, I, I wouldn't trade my career. Go, you know, no, I have no regrets whatsoever. I, it was great. The consumer-facing side has many additional opportunities. You know, I, I'm also the chair of a utility. If you had said to me that I was going to be the chair of a utility at some point in my career, I would have said, why? How would I qualify for that? But you do. You know, all the experiences that you've put together on dealing with consumers, because in the end, utilities serve, uh, serve the public. And, uh, you know, what is it the consumer wants? Well, they want great service. They want reliable service. They want to make sure that it's there when they, when they turn the lights on and, or the switch. It's great. And you, all your business skills that you've accumulated over a lifetime, uh, they all apply. And I had a, a friend of mine when I was leaving PepsiCo. He, um, he was in Hawaii. He's Japanese. I'll, I'll mention his name, Henry Katsuda. And Henry said to me, he goes, George, always remember. Your skills are all transferable. Everything you learn is transferable. Don't ever forget that. And uh, that was a great learning point for a young guy at the time. You know that uh, you keep that in mind that you're going to be. Uh, you know that it, that it, that is uh, uh, everything you learn has value. And it takes off the blinders, right? Because I think retail consumer-facing businesses are very, very, very intense, complex, as you said. You got to be on your game, and that can create a little bit of tunnel vision and sort of blinders. And, but by saying, hey, all of your skill, you know, all 90% of these skills are transferable, that takes the blinders off and you're like, oh, wait, how does this apply to utility companies? How does this apply to, you know, a hundred different kinds of businesses? Well, absolutely. You know, I, I've sat with private equity firms in discussing veterinary clinics, dental clinics. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, I've, 
uh, I'm not a, the best animal person in the world. We had a dog at one time, great dog, but but uh, it's just not you know. But how do you you? But it really comes down to you know the human being on the other end who this pet belongs to. That um, that pet means everything to them, mm-hmm. you know? and you learn a lot. You know, you have a lot to offer to organizations when you understand the consumer and what's important right. to them. And and by the way, you know, we're living in a world uh, when it, with pet. The consumers are now humanizing pets more. Right. It's a it's a different different challenge than it was ten years ago. Absolutely, yeah. I want to get a little bit into your last book and your next book. Maybe you wrote a book called "The Great Transition." Why did you write that book? What was the message of of the Great Transition? Well, you know, it's uh, that, and that's and, and that is the first part of the title. It's uh, the second part of the title is the, uh, the unconventional leadership is rising. But the point being that the world was changing. We, I, we saw that in the, in the retail sector. And I looked at this as the next transition that was coming, which was, you know, the technological one and how that was going to affect leadership, how it was going to affect how we worked, how we crafted strategies. The book is broad based. It's not just on the retail sector itself. And people who have read it, you know, have uh, written back to me and said, you know, gee, thanks. I've taken this this one lesson and I posted it up on my desk. So you get all these comments; they're all flattering and everything. Um, you know, they're quite. Sometimes it are very humbling. <laughs> I'm not very comfortable being put on the spot. You know, somebody tells me, "Oh, you, you've changed my life." You know, you kind of makes you feel uh, I don't know. And, I, and I've had people say that to me. So, um, but the next book was the new bricks and mortar. Uh, future-proofing retail. And I've told people this is the last book I run on, write on retail because I don't think there's any other book that c- I can write on retail. And because we're in this evolutionary state right now, technology is the path. Bricks and mortar is still there. But, you know, the pandemic has definitely mo- shifted things much faster into a future state. And that future state is reshaping itself. So this book, the way I've written it, was for everyone to better understand, you know, that you need to be customer-obsessed, tech-driven, and, um, you know, focused on, you know, how to future-proof your business uh, in other ways rather than the most co- the traditional and conventional ways that you have in the past. And so that's all about survival. And, Benno, there's companies out there, small businesses out there that you're probably aware of, too, in Germany, in Austria, that are 12, 1,500 years old. You know, how did they survive? What magic was it that did that? I've written about that in all three books because I, I'm just flabbergasted that we can't, the average S&P company today lasts 26 years, you know, and there are small businesses out there that are 12, 1,500 years old. The Japanese hotel that has had 52 generations of family running it. I mean, can you imagine? And businesses are failing everywhere today. So I, I, I wrote the book so that it's more grassroots, the people who want to survive, who want to be in the game longer, smaller, mid-sized uh, or large-sized businesses can do that. But it's the last retail book. <laughs> okay. Now, you mentioned earlier that you know part of your discipline, personal discipline maybe, to stay relevant is continued education, right? You, you took some classes at MIT, I don't know, in the last five or eight years executive programs, one on uh, the Internet of Things, the other on AI, artificial intelligence. What were your biggest takeaways from taking those continuing education classes? That we are probably not 
aware of how much change is coming our way. That was the biggest takeaway that, and the application of all of this technology is broad based. We've only, I think we've only touched a little bit of it. We have not gone all the way yet. You know, work from home. I am looking to see what that next evolution is going to look like. Um, you know, technology is great, but you know, the, the meetings are, you know, flat screen, you know, they're not uh, three dimensional. I, I, I'm waiting to see how all of this evolves even more. Because, for example, I see work from home being more permanent, you know, and companies taking advantage of it because they can hire people from across the world, uh, never mm-hmm. really have to have them, you know, move. So I, I, I see that. But I also see the applications in terms of healthcare. I mean, if we look, we're fortunate. We, we live in the era that we did, but I don't think we would have these vaccines if we didn't have the technology we have today related to the pandemic and um, I think it's we're, it's a unique situation so the big ha- aha behind all of this is that technology is moving faster and you know, with it, you know every every time we've had a financial crisis or anything setting setback an economic one technology is always taking that next step but we've never lived in an era where technology is something that the public has accepted and adopted as quickly that is the part that's also fascinating is the consumers adoption of this and trying to get it more and more into their their lives. And I actually wrote in the third book, the consumers are out of time and that they are also moving into the leisure society because they want more greater convenience. And how are you going to get that convenience other than through technology? I think what you said a few minutes ago is that we're not aware of how fast technology is moving. That is so true. Just going back to you know, maybe 2005-ish, you know, when, or 2007, I think, is, you know, when, when, when smartphones exploded. We've had an incredible pace of change, you know, just in the last 14, 15, 16 years with smartphones and in the last 18 months with, you know, Zoom meetings and working remotely and, you know, labor markets. It used to be that your labor market was basically, you know, 20-mile or 50-mile radius of the office, now your labor market is the world, right? I mean, I, I had um, I did an episode with Malik Parekh, who wrote also a future-proofing book, and he was in the call center industry for a couple decades. He told me that when, when he first went to the Philippines, there were 10,000 people employed in call centers, and now there are 1.3 million people employed in call centers, and, you know, all of them working for companies around the world. So that's 1.3 million people that North American companies used to look to hire those people within, you know, a 45-minute commuting radius. And now they're like, well, you know, we can do that, you know, worldwide. And technology is bringing huge opportunities to all business owners and executives that embrace it and think bigger and think outside the box. So I love the fact that you, you know, I think your book, New Bricks and Mortar, Future-Proofing Retail, it's a great example of, you know, you sort of talking the talk and walking the walk of stay relevant, dismiss nothing, expect the unexpected and plan, plan for the improbable, right? Yes, it is. And, and, you know, and you have to, you know, I mean, it could be you know, retail such a broad industry, right? There's, you, there's, even dentists are, are in a consumer-facing business, hairstylist businesses. But the public, what, to your point earlier about 2007 and the, the iPhone, that unlocked the door for the public to be able to leave their homes with technology in their hand. That changed everything. Absolutely everything. I think 
Peter Diamandis said, you and I have more information available to us through the iPhone or any smartphone than Bill Clinton had as president in the 1990s. That's crazy, <laughs> but true. <laughs> it's fascinating. Yeah. Along the same lines, you know, I think the first rocket that went into space, what landed on the moon, it was equivalent to a Commodore 64. <laughs> so, you know, compared to what we have in our hands today, it's really interesting. So, yes, technology is, it has huge applications and it's, I don't think we've really grasped just how how much of a part of our lives it is. And, you know, look, we, I, I can say this openly and, you know, sitting on a utility, if the power goes off, what do you think the number one complaint is? It's not the power. It's the fact that they don't have, they don't have access to the internet. So there's, a, there's an irony there, you know, that yeah. we know what's more important. My internet went down for like 30 seconds, a minute before we were starting this podcast. I was freaking out. 30 seconds later, I was back on. Everything was fine. But uh, hey, um, I sort of have a concluding question here. And, and this is, so f- for the last, Nine years, you know, as as founder and CEO of uh, the Inception Retail Group, you've been working with small, mid-sized retailers, restaurants, healthcare providers, and kind of, you mentioned dentists and and vets earlier, kind of anyone with consumer-facing businesses to help them grow or in turnaround situations. What advice do you find yourself giving clients over and over again? Probably the number one advice is, you know, don't stop changing. Don't stop evolving. This is innovation is such an important part of staying relevant in the eyes of the consumer. And uh, I can't emphasize that enough in terms of an innovation, how important the importance and the value of it, particularly when small businesses, if they're online or offline or both, um, you want to, and they have opportunity, you have a good brand and you want to continue to grow, you know, they lose their ability to scale when they lose, then they don't recognize or don't pursue innovation. And all the, you know, if you look at the graveyard of retailers, they missed the innovation part a long time right. ago. That is the biggest lesson. It's like my my old boss, I, I mentioned him a few minutes ago, Gary Friedman. He used to say to to us, you know, being a good merchant is a very simple thing. You have to have open ears and open eyes. And that's what staying relevant is, right? It's just continue to keep your ear to the ground and move with the times and and don't hang on to the past and you know, don't fossilize. Well, you're right. You know, and, and, and I guess the, the the analogy is if you're if you're gonna say you're in fashion and you haven't bought a new suit in ten years. <laughs> that, you got an issue. <laughs> you have an issue. <laughs> All right. On that on that note, if folks wanted to reach out to you just one on one, what what's a good way to for them to find you? You know, my website or email address or whatever. You know what the best is uh, at uh, G Minicacus at inceptionretailgroup.com. And okay. uh, that's the best way to reach me. And I'll I'll put that into the podcast notes as well. Awesome. Very good. Well, great conversation. Thank you for sharing it with with me and our our listeners out there in now 34 countries, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you very much, George. Well, thank you very much. Have a great day. And if folks wanted to explore other growth topics, you can find me on our website, realignforresults.com, or just email Benno, B-E-N-N-O, at realignforresults.com. Thanks and keep growing.
You can listen to more episodes on Apple, Spotify, or Google. We would love for you to subscribe, rate, and review it. Share it with your friends or colleagues if you enjoyed the content. Always growing.